Well, first, I'm really sorry to disappoint you today. I have absolutely nothing to say about unicorns. <laughs> I do have a sermon on the difficulties of Bible translation, but I'll save that for another time. <laughs> so, the, uh, um, but th- thank you for the kind invitation to be with you today. I've always loved this church, and I enjoy every opportunity that I have to be here and to, and to see old friends that I haven't seen in a while. Um, in, in fact, I'm, I'm grateful for any invitation to preach anywhere. And certainly grateful, especially grateful for invitations to preach at places that I've already preached at. <laughs> that uh, uh, There's really only a handful of Baptist churches in the state that, that will risk having me in their pulpit. Um, and I, I think there's some official blacklist somewhere that, <laughs> that, that I'm on. I've been the subject of some sermons in the state at, at some of those other Baptist churches, but, but uh, <laughs> rarely do I get to, to preach at them. Uh, so, so I especially love this church. In fact, it was it was years ago at Spring Creek that I that I had the the most interesting compliment that I've ever gotten after a sermon. Um, it was I, I remember um, d- different sound person um, who I, ha- I have a lot of respect for for people who run sound in churches. It, my my only complaint is that they they have a tendency to completely overestimate the competence of preachers to, to operate equipment. So, so I, I remember he handed me a wireless microphone and said, it all goes downhill with these words, all you have to do is hit these two switches like this. And I thought I had it. I thought I had it. Um, but evidently I messed something up and there was no sound. And I didn't notice the frantic gestures from the sound guy in the back, but I'm just walking all over the stage, having a great time and wondering why are people not laughing in the places that they're supposed to laugh at. Um, But anyway, finished the sermon, and I was out in in the foyer there, and somebody walked up to me and said, that was a great sermon, I couldn't hear a word. So. Today, I will stand right here in front of this microphone. You will hear every word, and you can decide which was better. (laughs) I've had this nagging feeling lately that whenever I'm speaking at all, I'm always speaking at the wrong time. Sometimes it's because I'm just a bit behind everyone else. I've often been accused of being a bit slow. I like to think of it as being careful and deliberate. I, I have, on occasion, spoken without thinking, hence that blacklist at some of those churches, and, and suffered the consequences for it. But generally, I like to think about things for a bit, at least, before I speak. I'm the person in the meeting who, after everything has been settled, wants to go back to an issue that was discussed 15 minutes earlier. There are other times, though, when I say something at the wrong time because I didn't have the opportunity to say it when I wanted to say it at the time that it needed to be said. I was really, really happy to hear that choir anthem because it was just absolutely perfect for today's sermon that we heard an Easter hymn on Pentecost Sunday. 
Last year, I preached an Ash Wednesday service, and I talked about Palm Sunday. Today, I'm going to talk some about Christmas, and it's the beginning of June. Now, the good thing about being the pastor of a church is that you have the opportunity to speak every Sunday. Of course, one of the bad things about being the pastor of a church is that you have to take that opportunity to speak every Sunday, and it takes an incredible amount of time to prepare a sermon once much less every week of the year. And fortunately, I don't have to do that. Instead, I can pull a sermon out of my files, one that I've already written, revised, and probably preached several times to different, I hope different, congregations. (laughs) A sermon that by the time that I preach it, it's carefully crafted and it's a finely honed masterpiece. This is not one of those sermons. (laughs) Because I have one that I could have used. It's a perfectly good Pentecost sermon. Unfortunately, when I looked at it, I saw that I had preached it here at Spring Creek in 2006. Now, I understand it's a very slim chance that there's someone here that was both present in 2006 when I preached it and can remember a sermon that they heard over a decade ago. But, but nevertheless, I won't take that risk. Besides, even though that sermon would have been easy to preach, it's not what I need to preach, mainly because it's not what I need to work through myself. Instead, the question that I want to ask today, that I want to think through today, is the most basic question of all, and that is, what is the point? If I don't know the purpose, then I can't know what I ought to be doing. And if I don't know what I ought to be doing, then I'm very likely not doing the right thing. And every once in a while, something happens that prompts me to ask that question. It could be a committee meeting, because I fail to see the point of most meetings. It's often the question I ask when I prepare the syllabi for my courses. What's the point of this assignment? The students won't want to do it, and I won't want to grade it. So what's the point of giving it? And we can and should ask that same question about our church activities. What's the point of our worship? What's the point of our missionary activity? What's the point of our partnership with other groups? What's the point of the gospel? These are big questions that face the church today. And if we don't ask them, we are doomed to merely keep doing what we've always done just because we've always done it that way. Maybe I should put this in another context before you give up in despair and walk out of the doors right now. So, so think about Christmas for a moment. I, I'm really jealous of people who find social interaction easy. That I don't. I, I'm an introvert. I really enjoy conversations with individuals. Even people in small groups. Large groups, though, packed in enclosed areas, though, not so much. Now, I can cope as long as I know how long that I have to endure this, which is the big problem with the holidays, because people come over and they don't leave, (laughs) which which shouldn't be a problem, because I'm, I'm usually cooking, which means I need to be in the kitchen, which really relieves me of the responsibility to pretend to be the gracious host conversing with guests in the living room. 
For those of you who have been over at my house, now you know the secrets. So. Now, that would all work if it weren't for the design of the house that we lived in for over 20 years. Because the entry door that we used opened directly into the kitchen. People would come in, they would stay, and they would talk. And I wanted to scream, get out of my kitchen. Can't you see I'm cooking for you? For you. That's really the root of the problem. In his book, A Nazareth Manifesto, Samuel Wells describes three familiar Christmas scenes. And we've all experienced these things. First, the problem of buying a gift for the most difficult member of your family. You browse online, you go to store after store, searching for the thing that will make that person happy. The problem is you have no idea what will make them happy, maybe because you've never seen them happy before. You only know that you've been trying to make them happy for years and have never yet succeeded. Some of you do know what I'm talking about. So once again, you spend more money than you really should, only to see that same half-hearted smile on their face as they open the gift. A smile that's really just a sign of another year of disappointment. Or maybe, like me, you're the one who's doing the cooking. You, unlike me, though, are not doing it to avoid people, but because you want everything to be perfect for your guests. Your past few weeks have been this flurry of shopping and baking and the perfect holiday meal that demands your full attention. And at the end of the day, you hug your guests and you say, you know, it's a shame we didn't really get to talk. Maybe you've decided that you've just absolutely had it with the materialism of Christmas. Instead, your heart is broken for the people who won't have enough while the rest of us enjoy our excess. So instead, you turn all of your Christmas presents into charity vouchers and you donate them in the names of the people you love to those worthy causes. For people whose needs are far greater than your own. Now, the common thread that runs through all of these examples can be summed up in one word, and it's four. When a relationship is broken, we want to find the perfect thing to do for that person that will somehow make everything right. When we, or I should say you, have guests, we want everything to be perfect. So we spend our entire time doing things for them. Cooking, cleaning, providing activities, all designed to ensure the perfect visits. When we know that people are in need, we want to do something for them. Something that will meet their needs over maybe a long, cold winter. So the word that captures the way that we do Christmas in America, in the American church, is for. We cook for, we buy presents for, we give for, we sacrifice for. And those are all good, noble, loving, and praiseworthy activities. But surely there's something greater. Didn't Jesus say himself that no one has a greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends? To be honest, though, that's a puzzling statement. Why, why should the degree of our love be measured by what we do for our friends? Surely you would sacrifice your life for your child. You would also sacrifice your life, I hope, for a good friend. Okay, maybe some of your friends. But shouldn't the heroic love 
be the willingness to sacrifice one's life for a stranger, not a friend? No. Because no matter how much or how great we sacrifice, a sacrifice is just never enough. You can sacrifice your entire life for a stranger, and in the end, they're still a stranger. Four will never break down our barriers. Four does not tear down our walls. Four does not end our resentments. Four never overcomes our isolation. Four by itself never results in love. So why do we make our holidays, especially Christmas, all about four? God doesn't seem to celebrate Christmas that way. I mean, think back to your past Christmas holidays. God doesn't seem to worry about ensuring that everything about Christmas will be just perfect for you. God surely doesn't shower us with gifts and throw a passive-aggressive tantrum when we're not sufficiently grateful. But that's too bad, in a way. I'd like my faith to be simply about what God will do for me. It would be nice to expect God to do nothing except shower me with good things. And try to earn my devotion. And when those gifts weren't sufficient, I could just turn my back on God and say, what have you done for me lately? I'm not saying that God is not for us. God has always been for us. But not just us, though. God is for all of his creation. That, though, cannot be the whole story. And as we read the scriptures, we see that there's another word that's at the heart of the gospel besides for. It's with. Matthew 1, 23. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And Jesus states that the word became flesh and lived with us. John states that the word became flesh and lived among or with us. The last word that Jesus gave to his followers at the end of Matthew's gospel is this. And remember that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, this is the very nature and character of God. In the beginning it was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We see God's promise to be with us played over and over in scripture, over and over again. From his promise to Isaac in Genesis 26. Reside in this land as an alien and I will be with you. A promise that's repeated to Jacob in chapter 28. Know that I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you. To the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for thou art with me. The story of scripture begins in with, and it ends in with. Here's a passage from Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. For Jesus, community and relationship 
are essential features of a life that's fully lived in God. It's striking that so many of the miracles that Jesus performed were healings of people whose afflictions separated them from their communities. He healed the blind, the deaf, and the lame, all unable to fully participate in the life of the community. He healed a woman with a hemorrhage, which made her unclean under Jewish law, and was thus unable to participate in worship for 12 years. He healed lepers, exiled from their community for fear of contamination. He healed the garrison demoniac, forced to live among the tombs because he could not be chained. And he called the twelve to be with him during his ministry. The disciples, as far as I can tell from reading the Gospels, were of absolutely no help to Jesus whatsoever from the beginning of his ministry to the very end. Yet Jesus would not go to Jerusalem alone, even knowing that they would abandon him there. Jesus went with them. And the lesson of Pentecost is that God is still with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus promised his disciples something that they could not understand until they got to Acts chapter 2. He said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. And this is the gospel. And Paul sums it up clearly in that passage that Deborah read. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The gospel is reconciliation. It is relationship. It is community. And so when we place the for before the with, we corrupt the gospel. We've turned the sacred community into nothing more than customer service. And once we do that, we face the temptation to be like any other business and hang a sign that clearly states, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. Once we begin to think in terms of four, we easily begin to wonder who and who not deserves what we have to offer. When I see a person in need, I find myself wondering, what did that person do to put themselves in the circumstances they're in? Do they deserve my help? Do they deserve what they got? I leap to judgment, ignoring the warnings to judge not, to be aware of the beam in my own eye. You know that beam that I'm talking about. The one that bears the warning label that says, warning, removing this beam may be hazardous to feelings of superiority. You see, on his way from Judea to Galilee, Jesus encountered a woman who was estranged from several communities. Wonderful story. First, she was a Samaritan. Samaritans were the remnant of the northern kingdom after the fall of Assyria. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be people who had abandoned their faith. And any hope of reconciliation was lost when the Samaritans offered to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the offer was summarily rejected by the Jews. Second, she was a woman in the ancient world. Third, there must be some third reason, though. Because she goes to the well alone in the heat of the day. When we see that Jesus tells her that she has had five husbands and now lives with a man who is not her husband, we conclude that she's not the kind of woman that a self-respecting person should be talking with. In other words, a woman of questionable moral character. 
And I suspect that that same beam that prevents me from seeing my neighbor also prevents me from seeing this text. You see, if the problem is her lack of morals, then why does Jesus not tell her just to leave the man who's not her husband? Maybe Jesus knows what I refuse to see, that we rarely, if ever, control our own destinies. That we often find ourselves in situations that are not of our own making. And even writers of Bible commentaries tend to read this text as if a woman in ancient Israel got to choose their, her own husband. A woman was simply given to her husband by her family. What she wants was of absolutely no concern. And if she was found unsuitable for some reason, most often because of an inability to bear children, she would simply be given back to the family, at great shame to the family. So what we have here is a woman who was given to her family, by her family, to any man that would take her. She had no choice, no power, no community, no family, no friends, no hope. But after one conversation with Jesus at the well, she proves to be a better apostle than any of the twelve had been so far. The text says many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. But when the disciples go find Jesus, after they get over their shock that he's speaking with a woman, they urge him to eat. He replies that he has food that they know nothing about. His food was to do the will of the Father. And this is the life, the work, and the ministry of Jesus. This is the mind that Paul calls us to have. The mystery and miracle of grace is that God fills our empty lives through the abundance that we find in those whose lives seem so much more empty than our own. Now, my wife doesn't like it when I do this, but occasionally I pick up hitchhikers. You may be wondering why antisocial introvert would ever pick up a hitchhiker, <laughs> which is a good question. I, uh, I never really want to, but sometimes I get the feeling that I need to. A few years ago, I was driving to Shawnee one morning from my, my home in Norman, and I pitched, picked up a hitchhiker on Highway 9. I, I can't remember his name, at least not the name he first told me that he had. I, I distinctly remember the overwhelming odor of cigarette smoke. And, and resisting the temptation to roll the windows down. And as he sat there wondering, as I sat there wondering what I had gotten myself into, he told me that he had been in the Marine Corps. I told him that, that I was a chaplain in the Army, and, and we compared our experiences in the military. We talked about difficulties adjusting and how only people who had, who had been deployed could really understand. And we spent the next 15 minutes telling stories, jokes, and enjoying each other's company on the ride. And he asked to get out as we approached the smoke shop at Little Axe at the casino. No surprise, I thought. Uh, I pulled into the parking lot and he started to get out. But just before he got out, he turned to me, looked me directly in the eye and said, I don't usually tell people this, 
but you just gave a ride to the Archangel Gabriel. <laughs> I didn't laugh. <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't exactly sure what protocol demanded in such a situation, so, so I just said, well, it, it was a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Um, he walked into the smoke shop. I drove on to Shawnee. But I couldn't get the opening words of Hebrews 13 out of my mind. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing that, some have entertained angels without, without knowing it. Did I meet the Archangel Gabriel? <laughs> Probably not. Did I meet an angel that day? Almost certainly. Uh, the word for angel in Greek, angelos, j- just means messenger. One sent from God. I met a man on Highway 9 who bore a message to me from God. A message that contained the truth about myself, about God's kingdom, and about the precious people that scripture calls the least of these his children. A message that contained a vision of Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, and what it means to truly be his presence every hour of every day. And may those who have ears to hear, let them hear.